Well, it's time once again for the bonus Christmas episode of Between the Lions. But before we begin, I'd like to thank a few people first. Barry Freeman, Kathy Wagner, Heidi Arsenault, Leah Springer, Linda Jandro, Mandy Eve Barnett, and Terry Lineman. Not only for their stories and poetry, but for their time as well. And to you, our listeners, I would like to wish each and every one of you out there a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. For a lot of people, for one reason or another, this time of year is not so merry at all. If you are able, I encourage you to consider those who do struggle with this season and do something extraordinary for someone you normally wouldn't. If love is indeed what makes the world go round, why don't you add an extra revolution to the world with one act of kindness for a stranger? A Child's Christmas in the Hat Car coming! The shout came from the street below. My best friend since grade three, Lloyd, was the lookout man at the bottom of the steep sled run that ended on a once-wagon trail named after the not-too-steep-for-loaded-wagons route up from the river valley that eventually led to Fort McLeod in the southwest. Now it was a city street curving up the gully from the river valley to the flatland above where it joined 5th Street. Named McLeod Trail, it was not the famed trail in South Calgary. This was in Medicine Hat, my hometown. The sledding slope could be more accurately designated as a sliding hill because we, the members of the sliding fraternity, applied all manner of conveyance to our winter passion. The topography of the hill allowed only one really good run, a shallow groove without any bends that many mittened hands had shaped and then polished by endless rides on toboggans, sleds, or shipping crate cardboard. The McLeod Hill had been crowded for a while just after school let out this day. Lloyd and I were the only ones left now, and the light was fading fast. Early darkness in December, close to the winter solstice, descended like a gray wool blanket until streetlights came on, which would be our signal to get home. However, the cautious driver of the car that passed slowly down the road had not yet turned on his headlights. All clear, Lloyd hollered from the street level, where his view of traffic was unimpeded by bushes on the hill. Hurry up, he yelled again, his wool mittens cupped around his mouth. I prefer the sitting position on the sled, borrowed from my older brother, but Lloyd liked the death slide on his belly, toes dragging behind, stirring like rudders on a boat. It was fast and dangerous, but any slide on that steep hill always had an element of danger. Bones had been broken at some points. The run ended on the street at an angle, and if you had enough momentum, and if the city's sanding crew had not added grit since the last snow, then you could make it to the other side of the street. And if you could make the turn on the uncleared snow of the sidewalk maintaining speed, the incline could carry a rider as far as 4th Street and under ideal conditions, all the way to the parking lot beside the dairy on 3rd. I scooted forward, shifting my weight to break the tenuous friction between the packed snow and the metal runners. As soon as I slid over the edge, the immediate gathering of momentum felt more like falling than a ride down. I never made it to the bottom. 
My steering was erratic, and just ten feet from the street, a runner glanced off an exposed route. I went one way, and the sled went the other into the bushes. Blood on the snow makes it look much worse than it is. A mitt full of snow pressed on the nose helped speed up the clotting. But when Lloyd kept grinning and squishing my nose flat, I squawked, Stop! Enough! I batted his cold, soggy mitts away and used the back of my bare hand to see if the blood had stopped. Told you to lay down. Your center of gravity was too high, he grumbled. His father worked at the Medicine Hat Airport, recording and reporting metrological conditions, and as a man of science, he imparted a lot of information to Lloyd, which did prove to be useful in the most surprising situations. I brushed snow from my now-torn winter jacket. I'm good. Now your turn. Lloyd shook his head. I'm cold and have to pee, he said. It was a long struggle to get back up the hill with a sled. I'll show you how it's done tomorrow, he said. Gotta get home now. He waved and left. I said the same and started pulling the sled home. This was the week before the Christmas holidays, and there were only four days left of school. Our English class was given an assignment during those four days, something we were supposed to think about while trying to forget school and have some fun. It was to be an essay titled What I Did Over the Holidays. Note that it was worded in a way such, I guess, that Christmas was not mentioned, as was not Hanukkah or any other religious event. It left room for a story bereft of God or deity. I intended to concentrate my writing on snow sledding, skating, and snowball fights, all in the style of Dylan Thomas's A Child's Christmas in Wales, a popular recording of the story which the local radio station always played on Christmas or Boxing Day in tandem with a recording of a Christmas carol or multiple repeats of music like Frosty the Snowman, Jingle Bells, and a dozen others, including Roy Rogers' version of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. My holidays adventures would recall all the snow activities we always enjoyed in the extended time off from school. The wind began on the second last day of school, one day before Christmas Eve. On the walk home from school, we marveled at the rise in temperature and the heavy, gusty wind that pushed us eastward past the already soft sled hill over McLeod Trail. The next day, the wind intensified and the temperature increased. It was later to be remembered as slushy Christmas. Puddles and piles of wet snow prevented even a pleasant walk against the gale force wind from the west, a Chinook named by the early white European settlers in honor of the Chinook native band that dwelled on the other side of the Rocky Mountains. Christmas Day was a warm and nearly snowless delight, waking up before sunrise in a darkened bedroom, feeling for the knee-length stocking at the foot of the bed, pulling out the rolled-up coloring book and crayons, feeling deep past the new pair of socks and the miniature toy car and a little box with a chocolate cherry, down to the paper-wrapped Japanese orange in the toe and pull it out to unwrap as quietly as possible to take an acid bite of the skin to start the peeling and the separation of its segments to lay back and let the juice flow over the tongue making saliva glands clench and then to swallow the first bite of this Christmas. Warm winds above freezing still made for an unpleasant wind chill and it was a miserable week spent inside playing the games we had gotten for presents that Christmas or from Christmases past, and pulled from storage in the dark recesses of the basement beyond the octopus gas furnace which spluttered with flickering flames like a sleeping dragon. Snakes and ladders, Monopoly or jigsaw puzzles, all of us jostling for a spot on a well-worn living room rug 
now littered with the detritus of Christmas wrappings, toys, and occasional string of tinsel that the cat pulled down from the tree, our wool sock feet disrupting play as we lay on bellies kicking feet in excitement at a lucky roll of the dice or turn of a card. Then raiding the Christmas turkey in the fridge for a few more scraps to build a sandwich slathered with cranberry jelly and devoured with a glass of ginger ale snaked from mum's supply for her nightly rye and ginger but had to settle for a cheese and relish sandwich because mom had started baking turkey soup when my older brother had stripped the carcass of all the best meat for his sandwich before that. My friend Lloyd came by once to see what I got for Christmas and marveled at the mechanical toy helicopter I had flown once before it was blown into the poplar tree by the back alley where I waited for the right gust of wind to dislodge it to be retrieved and put away for a calmer day. He reported that the sled hill on McLeod Trail as well as all the hills he had inspected, were totally ruined, probably for the whole winter, unless we got a massive amount of snow. Forays into the great outdoors for short lengths of time to visit friends or catch a movie at the Monarch Theatre, jostling in a joyful crowd of munchkins in soggy boots and mittens, smelling of peppermint lifesavers, spilled Pepsi and buttered popcorn to see the latest Walt Disney cartoon, and a tedious music and dance movie that played way, way too long, to keep the attention of that mob. Parents should have known that Gene Kelly and Leslie Caron dancing to classical music would not be a happy combination, but at least it got the kids out of the house. But on Saturday, we could look forward to the weekly kids program at the Astro Theater, a jam-packed popcorn-throwing two-hour medley of old cartoons and black-and-white serials like Jet Jackson, Sky King, and sometimes a Tarzan movie. Mother was getting very tired of the Christmas holidays. She called it the holler days because after a week she was hollering every ten minutes for us to be quiet and go outside. When father came home from his work trip on the train, she let him know it was his turn to entertain the troops. And the next day, the day before New Year's Eve, he began by hollering at us after breakfast to get our skates out and get into the car while mother made a whole loaf of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and packed them in an apple box full with two thermoses of hot chocolates with a stack of paper cups and then making sure each of us answered the roll call inside the car before she said, have fun and quickly close the door. My older brother pulled rank and took the front passenger seat where mother usually sat while the rest of us squirmed in the back seat with Duke, our golden retriever, who refused to lay on the floor with our never still feet as we jabbered on and father ignored the constant questions from that chorus asking where we were going, especially when we drove past the arena, over the bridge, and turned west out of town. The Chinook arch of clouds had moved away to the east, and the sun blazed down like the hot thermal nuclear explosion that it was in the palest eggshell blue sky. Dry, dead, faded yellow parrot grasses flattened by the wind that whistled through the barbed wire fences on either side of the road mixed with the sound of gravel bouncing inside the wheel wells until we made a turn into a field and stopped facing an open expanse of frozen water. Not a lake, but a slough. On the flat land, Father said, it was never more than a foot deep, and with the Chinook wind melting the surface so that when the nightly lessening of wind and the just-below-freezing temperatures happened, the slough became the flattest, smoothest, the biggest hockey rink in the world, mirroring like a rippled sheen of water and tufts of tall grass breaking the surface at random intervals. With car doors open to sit on the sills and take off boots to wiggle our feet into cold skates, rushing to be the first across the wind-whipped ground, 
to the broken edges of the ice to push and glide away ahead of the wind into a swirling world of blue ice reflecting the sky like some magical reversal that had us skating upside down in the cloudless heavens. Scarved, whipped by the wind like banners on sailing ships, we opened our jackets and backs to the gale. We made sails to race each other downwind to the far edge of our blue ice sea. While Duke barked and chased elusive mice through the crusty snow patches, Father laced on his long-bladed racing skates and bent at the waist with hands clasped behind his back, making gliding strokes that carried him away, astonishing us at the grace and speed as he diminished to a dot on the near horizon, where he turned and circled, jumping grass bunches and dodging white frothy patches of thin crusty ice, he glided back to us, stopping suddenly and spraying us with shaved ice like a speeding hockey player avoiding a crash into the boards. We struggled upwind to the car, and exhausted, we gulped hot chocolate from paper cups, almost too hot to hold, dribbling peanut butter and jelly on our chins before racing back to the ice for another go at skating in the sky as the sun touched the clouds lurking along the western horizon until we unlaced skates from sore feet and with trembling legs slid back into the car for an eye-closed car heater on full ride back home to a quiet supper table with smiling parents and droopy-eyed siblings too tired to squabble about anything except who might get the warm spot by the glowing glass gas fireplace in the living room as we listened to a now-forgotten comedy show on the radio. The new year was ushered in with rug-rolled-back dancing and laughter with friends punctuated by midnight cheering, hugs, kisses, and singing along to the radio as the children in their beds woke to the ruckus for a moment and then slid back into a dream world filled with contentment. The next day visits from relatives, drinks poured and toasted to greet the new year with more laughter, hugs and handshakes, while still quiet children played on the rug with visiting cousins avoiding adult feet or sitting on the stairs reading books or magazines brought by mother's maiden aunt from England. The warm wind lessened overnight, and by the time we were ready to go back to school when I thought I might ride my bike, the temperature had dropped and the wheels were frozen in the puddle where I had parked it. Mom said the radio station had played Bing Crosby singing I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas once too often and it jinxed the whole holiday season. The first day back at school it started to snow, fat fluffy flakes drifting down without wind and I could never remember whether it snowed for 8 days and 8 nights when I was 11 or whether it snowed for 11 days and 11 nights when I was 8. But the snowfall after slushy Christmas was the best snowfall of the winter and the one winter I remember as the very, very best ever. I Stay Home and Cry by Kathy Wagner Merry, Merry Christmas. My only son just died. While everyone else is festive, I stay home and cry. The whole world comes together to love those hurt and scared through illness, floods and hurricanes. It's good to know they care. But no one wants to notice our greatest shame of all, a generation of our children murdered with fentanyl. We only want to save ourselves, not people who use drugs. Are those who struggle inwardly not worthy of our love? Merry, Merry Christmas. My only son just died. While everyone else is festive, I stay home and cry. Some of us old dolls celebrate Christmas in a different way. Here's my spoof on 
was the night before Christmas. It's called Twas Some Night. Twas some night before Christmas when all through your house not a warlock was stirring, not even a mouse. Your coats were all hung in the closet with care in hopes that the family would soon be there with Ma in her kerchief and I having a nightcap. We decided to all settle down for a little nap. When out on the road there arose such a clatter, I sprang from my chair to see what was the matter. Away to the window I flew like a flash, hopped on my broom and arrived in a dash. The moon on my breast, if you really want to know, gave a luster to men. With their eyes all aglow, when what to their wondering eyes should appear but three witches on brooms that I hold quite dear, with little old maids so lively and quick, I knew in a moment this was no trick. More rapid than Tesla, their courses they came, as I whistled and shouted. And called them by name. Now, Ma. Now, Granny. Now, Auntie, you little vixen. Oh, come on, find Cupid and don some glitzen to the top of our brooms, to the top of the wall. Now, fly away, fly away, fly away all. The Yuletide Night by Leah Springer. The night during Yuletide was steeped in a gloom, and was hiding himself in the depths of his room, for he cared not a bit for the joys of the season, nor for feasts or for singing could he fathom a reason. It was well that he hid, as he looked such a fright, for he'd fought and he'd scrapped for at least a fortnight. He was mean to his servants, at his dogs he would bellow. And was known all round as a most disagreeable fellow. His great hall lay in darkness with no garlands of green. In the fireplace, a mere glimmer of the blaze it had been. His minstrels were sleeping, the sentries on guard. The drawbridge was up, and all the portals were barred. But out in the courtyard, where nothing else stirred, soft movement of footsteps was now to be heard. Who goes there? The sentries demanded out loud. And they summoned Sir Knight to start looking around. Then emerged from the shadows a most curious sight: a bedraggled young waif who looked quite a fright. The knight rubbed his eyes, for he could not surmise what manner of person could just fall from the skies. Not a sound broke the silence as they all stood on guard, and they stared in amazement in that cold, darkened yard. What vision is this? They all seemed to query. As they gazed on a damsel alone and quite weary, a gleam in her eye, despite the late hour, she'd travelled all day from tower to tower. She was ragged and rumpled with nary a flourish, a vagabond peasant that no knight could cherish. The damsel, not heeding the awe-stricken crowd, straightened her tunic and turned right around. Through portals and hallways, past banners on wall, she set course for the fireplace amid the great hall. On reaching the darkening grate, she drew back and gazed at the cold, massive stones grown quite black. 
Then, wearily shaking her head with a sigh, she quietly resolved not to let this light die. She reached in her pouch and searched till she found the evergreen bough which she'd wrapped all around. Then, laying the wreath atop mantle and hearth, she turned once again and sped to depart. The knight, in amazement, came running to find the evergreen gift with bright ribbons entwined. As he lighted a candle, he saw through the gloom that a twinkling of light spread itself through the room. The flames on the hearth leaped again to the floor, and the walls came alive with their glow once more. His hall was infused with such warm golden light that it enveloped the heart of the soul-stricken knight. He knew all at once that his ways needed mending, that his fights and his strife were soon to be ending. He saw through the light to his dark troubled past, and vowed that the battles he'd fought were his last. Had this been a dream, a fanciful vision, or had the spirit of Yuletide been here on a mission? No answer he found, though he waited in vain, by the hearth in the hall for her appearance again. To think that this creature, this unlovely sight, could have entered his home to create such delight. Such thoughts by the night were not soon forgotten, and he, to his wonder, would think of her often. So he summoned his servants to prepare a great feast, and invited the peasants from greatest to least. There was music and laughter and food for them all. Joy and goodwill once again filled his hall. The villagers saw now that the night was no more the miserable scoundrel they'd all known before. They knew that the knight felt great joy in his heart, and they gave him a blessing as they turned to depart. Kind words for her deed, the knight vowed to speak, as he set through the hamlets the damsel to seek. Her trail was well marked by the wreaths on each door, but sight of the damsel he glimpsed no more. For far had she fled to the ends of the earth, on her way to deliver the light and mirth. The events of this night were to spread east and west, as the damsel, the spirit, went forth on her quest. Many years passed, and so, each year during Yuletide, the night would uphold the custom of hanging a wreath in the cold, in hopes that perhaps, if he hung it just so, he'd catch sight of the damsel from so long ago. In My Own Words by Linda Jandra It was hard to drag myself out of bed this morning. To be fair, it's hard to do that most mornings. The bed's a lot warmer than the room I'm staying in. It's better than last month, though. Last month I had a bed, a room, and a constant feeling of dread. For years I woke to insults echoing through the vent, screams bouncing off walls, and the occasional dull thud of a body colliding with walls that didn't bounce so well. At times like these, my shoulders would edge up near my ears. My belly felt like I was going to throw up, and this weird headache would curl around my right ear like my body was questioning why I put up with this. Thirty-three days ago, I left my dad's house for good. I had a job at a fast food place working the drive through most nights, and a second job lined up as a lifeguard. The thing is, 33 days ago, my stepmom barged into my room just as I was getting up. She threw some stuff at me. I ducked. It turned out one of those things was scissors that skidded across the sheet and sliced open the fabric. 
After her tirade of swear words and the house shaking when she slammed the bedroom door on her way out, I had time to take stock. When I saw the shredded sheet, my favorite sheet no less, I knew my training as a dodgeball master had come to an end, and I decided it was time to put my plan in motion. I grabbed my backpack, stuffed some clothes in around my school books with some sanitary items I had nearby, and I headed out. As I walked to the school bus, I knew I made the right choice. That night, I slept at my buddy's house. Over the next few weeks, I couch surfed. I worked extra hours to save up for, for my first and last month's rent. I made my food supply last by eating at the breakfast club at school each morning and pocketing a snack for lunch. I did my laundry at the laundromat and did my own grocery shopping for some no-name stuff to keep me going. But storing stuff did become an issue. Can't carry everything in your backpack. So, math class this semester is taught by the mother of one of my old soccer mates. I usually keep my head low, but this teacher mom asked me to stay after class a week into my new life. Sam, she said, taking off her glasses as she looked at me. I heard you haven't been home in a few days. I shrugged. Good news travels fast. Are you eating okay? Yes. Do you have a place to sleep? I'm doing okay. I took the plunge and I told her my plan. She didn't ask why I left. I wouldn't have told her anyway. But I did feel safe to tell her I was getting a place lined up and I was content to be on my own. Do you need anything? She asked. I stared at her. Need? I didn't make a list. But I did tell her what I thought I needed, which was a place to store my stuff as I collected them all to set up a place of my own. I suggested that and I got the use of their shed. A shed sounds like a cool place to sleep, I suggested. You need something warmer than that, Sam. This time of year, the temperature can dip below zero. I was just joking, Mrs. P. Maybe she believed me. It's Canada. It was late autumn. I knew she was right. Long story short, I got this place two days ago. It's a sublet from some college student who didn't want the place anymore. I scored on some stuff, too. He left a couple of towels, a spray bottle cleaner, and a few odds and ends I won't have to go out and buy now. When you're on your own, the little things count. I paid first and last, which means I have a place for at least two months and have not had to go to the shelter, which I heard is not a safe place. I would have lost my stuff there if I wasn't careful. I heard that they were residents who freak out more, almost as bad as my stepmom, but maybe more. It sounded like another kind of house, so I'm glad I stayed away from that. This room's not home yet, but it will be. I have a window, a bed made of sofa cushions that I thought to salvage from some random curbside on garbage day, a sleeping bag, and some other stuff I picked up on my travels. The lifeguard job fell through though, so I'll have to wait to really make this home. From now until payday, I'll have to 
physically go to my bank to take out money if I need to, since I don't have enough in the bank to be able to take $20 out of the machine. Small sacrifices. I did some research and I bought some lentils and rice yesterday. Apparently, that's cheap, but nutritious. I'm learning to cook on my new beat-up camp pot that I was gifted by an old summer camp friend. So today, I woke up with no fear, no headache, and no dread. So what if the air is frosty and the floor is cold? Heat costs money, and I have priorities. It's day 56. Each day seems heavier. There's school and work and homework and traveling to all these places and making sure I have enough for rent and I have some food and figuring out what I'm going to eat on the weekend and wait, where did I spend that $10 bill I thought I put aside for emergencies? Waiting for the bus to arrive is cold. I need better boots. Maybe I can also find a second-hand coat at Vimy's. Maybe I better save money for essentials. My dad and stepmom reached out to me through the school and we had a meeting. They put on a show and acted like I was being rebellious. Like I slammed the doors. Like I ripped my own sheets. Like I needed to apologize and we'd all be one happy family. My throat burned for hours after from the bile I swallowed. But I managed to stay there through the whole meeting. They left without me and I went back to class. When I woke this morning, I counted my blessings. I have a bed. I have a safe place to live. I have food waiting for me at school. I have shifts at work. I have a bus pass so I can still travel to work and school even though I'm broke. And I don't need to get my family Christmas presents since we're not getting together. I get dressed under the covers. It's cold in here. Then I go down the hall to shower, and there's another blessing. The bathroom's the warmest room in this house. Whew. At school, the classroom doors are decorated for some Christmas contests. I'm not in the mood. I keep my head down and head to math class. Mrs. P smiles at me when I walk in the door. I didn't have time to finish my homework yesterday, so she's not going to be happy for long. She tells me my guidance counselor wants to see me. Hmm. My guidance counselor is this guy who used to be a star athlete. In grade 9, my friends and I googled him. Now I know him as a guy who tries to talk like a coach when we walk, talk in his office or touch base in the halls. But today's different. He's serious. He shuts the door. Oh shit, something bad must have happened. I see his lips move and I hear the sound of his voice. Then he goes to hand me something. I'm sorry, sir. What did you say? This is just a little something the staff organized to give a, to a few select students we want to help out this Christmas. Merry Christmas, Sam. I take the envelope and I peek into it. There's a few twenties. A couple of grocery cards that may read $50 each and a certificate for the nearest mall. I get misty-eyed. He gets misty-eyed. I almost go to hug him, but we're not on hugging terms. Thank you, I say. 
Merry Christmas to you two. I leave his office a bit stunned. I think I may have enough money for groceries and some winter threads at Vinny's. I smile at every teacher I see on my way back to class. Holy shit. Ashley wished her co-workers a great Christmas and walked to her car, already filled with gifts and her luggage. After brushing away the snow that had fallen steadily all afternoon, she brushed off her thick coat and gloves and turned the car towards the road. It normally took her nearly two hours to reach her parents' home, but with the blizzard now in full swing, it might take longer. Away from the streetlights and buildings of the town, she slowed down to peer through the windshield and driving snow. The occasional set of headlights make the falling snow a sheet in front of her. She gripped the steering wheel even tighter, tension in her shoulders and neck. A large brown object appeared through a white curtain of snow. Ashley turned the steering wheel a little too fast in her reaction to avoid whatever it was, and that was the beginning of her ordeal. The car slid one way, then the other on the icy surface. Ashley's gloved hands ripped the steering wheel desperately, trying to correct the vehicle's haphazard movements. Without a clear view out of the windshield due to the blizzard, she could only hope she was still on the road. The car juddered and bumped, then plunged downward front first and stopped. The Christmas gifts tumbled onto the floor from the back seat. No, please, no, this can't be happening. Putting the vehicle into reverse, she pushed the accelerator. The car spun and whined, throwing plumes of snow into the air. The car stayed put, no movement whatsoever. Picking up her cell phone, she began pushing numbers and held it to her ear. Nothing, no sound. She looked at the device. No bars, no signal. I'm stuck. What do I do now? Ashley put the car into park and undid her seatbelt. Clambering into the back seat, pushing the few gifts aside, she found a shovel and pulled the door lever to open it. It would not budge. After trying the other three doors, she sat with a thud on the passenger seat and screamed in frustration. I can't even get out. So much for mum's insisting on an emergency kit for the blankets, a first aid kit and a whole bunch of other stuff. This shovel is useless. Looking at her cell phone again, she held it up to the roof. Still nothing. Climbing up to the back of the car, she held it as high as she could. One bar. Pushing her feet into the back of the rear seat, she pressed the digital number display again. The device crackled. She heard a faint, Hello? Shouting, Ashley put her mouth to the microphone. Dad, I'm off the road, in a ditch, please come. The panicked answer crackled back. Ashley? Where? Which road? Her mind froze. Which road was she on exactly? The rural township road, towards Camden, I think. Rear of car, sticking up, lights on. A deep tone replied. Oh, cool. The connection died. Ashley looked at the phone. No bar, no service. Now I'll wait and hope. Dad will find me. He will. The gas gauge showed quarter full. That's plenty. Dad will be here soon. 
I should have filled up my mum said. Damn. Something thudded against the car. She looked up and saw a large moose pass the window. You're the reason I'm in this predicament, you know that? The animal turned to face her, as if it heard her, then plodded away, unhindered by the depth of snow. She yelled at the animal. Yeah, rub it in, I'm stuck, you're not. A shiver coursed down her body. She turned up the heater. Maybe I can use that blanket now. Twisting around, she pulled at the thick, plush material and pulled it around herself. Straining to hear vehicles, she was disheartened. Dad will be here in a minute. The car spluttered. Alarmed, she looked at the gas gauge. The warning light was flickering. I had enough gas. What's going on? The engine died and the heater stopped. No, please, no. Turning the ignition key, the owner gave a click-click sound. Panicked, she clambered back to the rear and held up her cell phone. No bars, nothing. Find me, Dad, please find me. The car's interior began to cool down. Her teeth chattered. Getting into the back seat, she cocooned herself into the blanket. Her breath clouded in the air, her body shivered, and her mind slowed. Ice formed, making crazed patterns on the glass windows. Silence shrouded the vehicle. Ashley's eyes closed. She was woken by a thudding noise and the car shuddering side to side. Dad, is that you? You found me. I knew you would. No reply came. He's probably in his car, towing me back on the road. She tilted her head. Wait, a car here, an engine. What is moving the car? Using her covered forearm, she wiped at the ice crystals on the nearest window. Brown fur was squeezed up against the glass. What are you doing, Moose? Get away! Another thud, and she looked to the other side of the car to see more brown fur on that side. What's going on? Moose, get away from here! The car juddered and moved. Ashley screamed. Don't push me into the ditch further, please. My dad will never find me. Get away. The screams were ignored. The vehicle seesawed on its axle. Then it thudded on something hard. Then the car was level. How is that possible? What happened? The soft brown muzzle squashed up against the side window. The animal's breath clouded and gave it a ghostly look. It nodded and then disappeared. The car began moving forward. Ashley peered out, squinting at a heavy, clouded, dark grey sky, and everything covered in a blanket of light. Ahead, she saw a faint jewel track of darker asphalt through ice and snow. Looking back, two moose were pushing the car. I'm dreaming. I'll wake up in a minute. This isn't real. Headlights shone ahead. Ashley cried with relief. I'm saved! The car stopped moving. She glanced back to see the two moose step into the ditch and disappear into the gloom. The vehicle stopped in front of her car, its red and blue lights flashing. Two men exited the patrol vehicle and came to the side window. The door opened and a rush of colder air entered. Ashley gripped the blanket closer. You found me, thank you. One officer scratched his chin. We've gone back and forth along this road at least three times. Your car wasn't on the road. How did it get up here? 
Your father reported you were in a ditch. Ashley bit her lip. Do I tell them two moose pulled me out? Am I crazy? Officer, if I told you what happened, you would never believe me. You can try, but in the meantime, I'll call the tow truck and get you into our vehicle to warm up. You look frozen. That night at home, huddled in front of a roaring fire with a mug of hot chocolate, wrapping paper littering the carpet and the Christmas tree sparkling, Ashley relayed her story to her wide-eyed parents and younger brother. That's not possible, Ashley. You were dreaming. If I was dreaming, how did the car get back up onto the road? I tell you, those moose pulled me out. I think me screaming at the first moose, telling it whose fault it was, I was in the ditch, made it feel guilty, and he got a friend to help. Her mum embraced her and said, Whatever happened, it was a Christmas miracle. You are home safe and sound, and we are grateful. Life's Lessons Learned This is a true story. Constance Lake is located about 18 miles west of downtown Ottawa, Canada. I imagine it has changed a lot since I was growing up there. There were only a few houses scattered along the one-mile road from the highway to the lake with permanent residents. The rest of the houses were more like cottages which brought seasonal residents. Two things were well known about Constance Lake then, there was good fishing all year round, and it served as a seaplane port. Friends were literally few and far between, so I had to make do with who and what was close at hand. Bullfrogs, snakes, and rabbits were my friends, though snakes I considered to be more of anti-friend than friend. But we all need those in our lives. For fear of psychoanalysis and being labeled as a serial killer in the making I will spare you the details of how I would get even with snakes. The point I am trying to make is that I did not have many friends. Christmas of 1970 this would change. We didn't have an indoor tree because of limited space but sans tree the rest of the cottage was decked out with the seasonal accoutrements, bicycles, garland, and streamers. Safely set aside from the wood stove sat a small collection of fancifully wrapped gifts. I was ecstatic. Of course, the first question I asked was, are those all for me? There was a collective soft chuckle of adults charmed by the innocent query of a greedy child. Not all of them were for me, but most of them were. I heard something unfamiliar come from the direction of the gift collection. I shushed everyone so I could hear it again. I was studying the presence to determine which direction or present the noise had come from. Before I heard the noise again one of the wrapped presents began to move. I thought a rodent had made it into the cottage and was now in the throes of ruining someone's gift. My mother must have recognized the look of concern on my face and assured me everything was okay. In fact, she insisted that I investigate the gift immediately. I have to admit I felt a little trepidation about investigating, but if mom said it was okay, it must have been. The closer I got to the present the more it moved, shaking side to side. Just as I reached down to pick it up the lid popped off. I jumped back somewhat startled. Reassuring words once again came from my mother. She was encouraging me to go look at what it was. I didn't have to take many steps closer to see that it was a puppy. It was clumsily trying to get out of the box. When I was close enough to help it, the puppy had one paw draped over the top edge of the box. It saw me up close. I saw all of it for the first time. Is that mine? The question was asked in disbelief. Mom confirmed that it indeed was mine. 
She continued saying something, but I had started picking the puppy up and had ignored what she was saying. The puppy was licking my face. It was clearly excited. Thinking back now I am curious if it was more excited about being out of the box or that it was receiving attention from me. No matter. There I was, sitting on the floor with an excited puppy in my lap trying to reach my face with its tongue. I remember the sting of its little tail wagging side to side as it slapped my inner thighs. Although I had other gifts under the tree, as far as I was concerned, they could wait. Upon my mother's insistence I reluctantly opened the other gifts. The Spirograph set and a Battling Tops game were cool but didn't hold a fiddle to my puppy. Randy, she needs a name. What are you going to call her? Mom had posed a good question. What was I going to call her? The first and only name that came to mind was that of a girl in my first grade class whom I have now long forgotten about. Susie. Her name is Susie. Susie was my new best friend, more like my only best friend, ever. She followed me around like, well, a lost puppy. Oh, as for those things mom had continued saying as I had tuned her out with the responsibilities for taking care of Susie, and I did. I walked her before school, after school, bathed her, fed her and everything else I had to do. Before the bus would come to pick me up for school, I would tie her up. After I was picked up mom would bring her in. Before the bus would drop me off mom would tie her up so she would be there to greet me. This went on for a few months, it had become our routine. It was a late March afternoon when my world came crashing down. I anxiously awaited for the school bus doors to open so I could run to Susie who had always been faithfully waiting for me to come home. I stepped off the bus, the doors closed behind me, and the bus drove off. I stood at the edge of the driveway as the bus's engine slowly faded into the distance leaving me in virtual silence. Susie was not at her post. There was no joyful barking. I ran over to where she should have been tied up. The rope looked as if it had been cut. I ran into the house frantically calling her name. She's outside. My mom tried to assure me. I said she is not. Mom tried suggesting that Susie probably had slipped her leash and was off gollivanting around and would be home in no time. I was not content with this and went in search of my best friend. She was nowhere to be found. My parents suggested that Susie probably had gone down to the now softening ice-covered lake and fallen through the ice. But what about the rope? I asked. They could only offer that she may have eaten through it and escaped. I was convinced she had been stolen by one of the many ice fishers who frequented the lake. My best friend would never have abandoned me like that. We never found her, and she never came home. This is when and how I learned not to get attached to animals slash pets. Oh, I can love them, and care for them, but beyond that, they are just animals. You can ask all the pets I have ever owned, and they will tell you they were well looked after. Susie brought me the best Christmas, the biggest heartbreak, and the hardest lessons in life that I have ever had. I wrote a poem several years later about Susie as an assignment. I suppose I could have just read the poem rather than tell the story as I have. Perhaps it was more for me than for you, but either way here it is for you now. Susie. You came to me in a cardboard box. No bigger than a pair of shoes. I knew you weren't a pair of woolen socks. So, I checked the box for clues. The lid popped open and out you came. You jumped right into my lap. I knew I must give you a name. And it came to me in a snap. I called you, Susie, without a thought. And it seemed to me, so right. 
I took some rope, a leash my parents bought, and fastened up your rope real tight. Your floppy ears and cold wet nose were the things I loved about you the most. And when you slept beneath my sheets, I knew it was because they were as warm as toast. You would greet me after school each day, as if you hadn't seen me in a year. And in your own peculiar way, you took away all of my fear. One day when I came home from school, you didn't greet me in the yard. I learned the day that life is cruel, and oh, so very, very hard. As I look back through all these years, to that specific time and place, I find myself still shedding tears. The day you went missing without a trace. A Christmas Tradition by Terry Lineman. Voices rise, tentative at first, then increase with confidence as family members join in singing Old Toy Trains by Roger Miller, a favorite among the more traditional carols sung every Christmas Eve. A sister-in-law strums her guitar beside the glittering Christmas tree in front of our living room window. Impatient young nephews sprawl on the carpet, more interested in peeking at gifts than caroling. Four cousins giggle on a love seat built for two. Others perch on the sofa armrests and lean against aunts and uncles, crowded together in cushioned comfort. The living and dining rooms are overflowing with merriment. Ethereal halos encircle their blurred faces as teardrops tremble at the corners of my eyes. Holiday lights transform into a kaleidoscope of color through a gossamer veil of sentiment and nostalgia. I hold my dog-eared song booklet up to conceal my efforts to stem the flow of tears with a hidden tissue crumpled in my clammy hands. The words are imprinted on my heart, yet my voice is held hostage. All I can do is move my mouth in silence and join along in spirit. This happens every year. The whole family knows why. They say it's rather sweet. Flickering candles in the poinsettia centerpiece cast a warm glow on the faces of some of my family gathered around the table. From my seat nearest the kitchen, I see empty plates scraped clean. My mint chocolate dessert was a resounding success. I should gather dirty dishes and take them into the kitchen, an excuse to escape and avoid further embarrassment. Instead, I watch my parents share a songbook, shoulders touching, serenity and wisdom emanating from their bond as they sing. Does mum think about the past, reliving the day she became a mother for the first time and looked lovingly upon the delicate babe in her arms? Does she wonder if she gave her children the tools to thrive, balancing safety with independence? As her firstborn daughter and also mother, I want to slide in beside her and hold her close, to draw strength from her and sing together. My gaze catches her attention. She gives me a sympathetic smile. Her eyes glisten and I look away. She understands. My husband sits at the table too. He has a twinkle in his eyes, probably remembering past Christmases when the girls were young. Every year their faces would light up with wonder and awe when he arrived home with a tree a few weeks before Christmas. He used to tell them that Santa met him in the forest and gave him one as a gift, as a thank you for looking after the trees. Our daughters sit together near the Christmas tree. I wish I could have been more consistent, more attentive, more of everything they needed, but they have grown into confident, caring young women, despite my perceived failings. I'm sure they know how much I love them. As if sensing my thoughts, they glance up from their song booklet held by their sister in the middle and grin at me. 
decades have passed since their debuts on the stage of their first school Christmas concerts, but it feels like yesterday to me. Flames dance in the fireplace like lords a-leaping over a bed of searing coals, heating the room to near unbearable levels. Sweat trickles down my spine. After all these years, you think I'd know better than to wear a wool sweater adorned with elves trimming a sequined tree. There's no way I can open a window without attracting more attention. How I long to sing from the rooftops and float along the touching melody into the night sky back to the moment when I first heard it. Music works its magic, linking powerful emotions and songs to vivid memories. I close my eyes. The voices of my family grow fainter as I am carried along a rhythmic train track to a cherished moment. The makeshift stage is lit up with tiny glittering lights, an evergreen adorned with colorful lights, tinsel, and children's handmade ornaments stands in a corner near a cardboard fireplace. Half a dozen brightly wrapped presents nestle beneath its branches. I know they're empty boxes, but my inner child imagines them filled with books, chocolates, and board games. Chairs scrape against the varnished wood floor, echoing in the dusty gymnasium as everyone finds seats. Hushed conversations and laughter ripple among the restless audience members, commenting on the nostalgic aroma of past childhood gym classes as they wait for the performance to begin. I can almost hear the squeak of running shoes and the dreaded bounce of dodgeballs finding their marks. A memory within a memory emerges of my earliest Christmas pageant. The edges of the image are hazy, like a sepia-colored photograph from days gone by. My classroom has been transformed into a strange and mystical world that appears to float in the blackness of a frosty winter evening. Darkened windows reflect the nervous excitement of my classmates and me, running around desks and chattering like a barrel of monkeys while we await our turn to perform. The chattering fades and I am back in the audience at Christina's first Christmas pageant. Her teacher leads the kindergarten class onto the festive stage and the room goes silent. I move forward in my seat in anticipation, warmth growing in my heart. My adorable daughter stands at the end of the front row, dressed in red velvet with rosy cheeks and blonde hair curled in ringlets. Someone turns off the lights, throwing the gymnasium into darkness for a few seconds until three spotlights illuminate the children who look like deer caught in the headlights. Christina squints, raising one hand to shade her eyes while she searches for her family in the audience. I wave from the center of the second row until Christina grins and waves before turning her attention to Mrs. Richards, who now stands at the front of the stage. Three rows of children fidget, but their eyes sparkle as they wait for their beloved teacher to give the signal. Mrs. Richards moves her arm like a symphony conductor, and after the first notes of old toy trains drift from the piano, she prompts the girls and boys to begin. Quiet at first, a chorus of childlike voices fills the gymnasium and brings the sting of tears to my eyes. With a lump in my throat, I search my purse and pockets for a tissue, unprepared for the flow of emotion that overwhelms me. I use my sleeve instead and then clasp my hands over my heart, watching my daughter sing with confidence and pride alongside her classmates. I am overcome with emotion as I realize the significance of this milestone. Kindergarten is a big step for children and parents. It represents an ending and a beginning. Children leave the safety of their insulated little worlds with hope and confidence, secure in the knowledge that they are cherished, supported, and important. As each child begins to create a life of their own, parents become spectators, cheerleaders, 
offering sympathetic shoulders to rest or cry upon when their children's journey through life becomes uncertain. Parents can only hope they have empowered them with the tools to succeed in their journeys forward. A cough brings my thoughts back to our living room. The song is ending. Pages rustle as the search for the next Christmas carol begins. I look over at my daughters, no longer five years old, but still secure in knowing that their family will always be there to cheer them on. My husband and I attended three Christmas kindergarten concerts, bursting with pride, while Christina, Joanna, and then Samantha stood under the magical lights of the season and each sang old toy trains with their classmates. The song will forever affect me, continuing to envelop me in the most powerful magic of all, forever linking me to those moments when I made a wish for my daughters, that they continue to be kind to others and help make the world a better place. And if my granddaughter Lily sings that song at her kindergarten Christmas concert, I will have plenty of tissues up my sleeve and in my pockets to give to her mother, Joanna. To me, Christmas is for celebrating time-honored traditions, revisiting treasured memories, and creating new ones that will become more precious as years go by. Merry Christmas and happy holidays to all. You have been listening to the Season 2 bonus Christmas episode of Between the Lines. I would like to thank once again each and every one of you for taking the time out of your life to share it with us. I hope and pray you can stay safe this holiday season. This now concludes Season 2 of Between the Lines. Season 3 is just around the bend and will begin airing on Wednesday, January 11th with the first of 18 new episodes featuring Canadian poets and their poetry. If you like what you heard in this episode or any other episode of Between the Lines, please consider liking and subscribing so you can be notified of any new content and features. Be sure to visit the Between the Lines YouTube channel, my website, therandylacy.ca, where you can also hear the podcast or read my blog, buy one of my books, or simply support the podcast by buying me a coffee or two. I'm your host, Randy Lacey. Stay tuned, be inspired, and write on.